Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. In this segment, we're speaking to Paul Blow from Quebec City. Hello, Paul. Bonjour. Oh, bonjour. Comment ça va? Uh, ça va bien. Et toi? <laughs> ça va très bien. Uh, très bien. Yeah. <laughs> great, land, Great. Okay, Been very good. I wanted to speak to you tonight quickly that you have uh, another review up and whenever things are at, happening at Kennedy's and King, I try to get behind the story. So we're hoping that maybe tonight you can just uh, illuminate listeners that you have stuff up there. And uh, lots of times people like listening to the author and then they go ahead and they read the book or the article. Yeah. So you're referring to my book review of actually JFK revisited through the looking glass. I did a book review. Actually, I, I hadn't planned to do one. I was on holidays and I, I brought some books and I was reading some JFK books, some really good ones. And I'll tell you what, because I was in the documentary and because I had seen the documentary, the two-hour version, the four-hour version, uh, there's even a version with a kind of color commentary from Jim and Oliver. It, it never dawned on me uh, that I would gain much by reading the book version, JFK Revisited. The other, the other reason is the first half of the book is transcripts of the documentary. So I didn't see that there'd be much added value for me to read it. And then uh, what happened after a while is, so, so I hadn't read it, the book, I, I had bought it like seven or eight months before I read it. What I have to tell your audience is the second half of the book is amazing even for those of us who are in the documentary. Uh, the second half of the book is added insights from the experts that were in the documentary. And there's a real gold mine of information there that I simply, most of it, I, I was reading it and I wasn't aware of. And that's why I said, well, look, <clears throat> maybe a lot of people are thinking like me is, why would I read this book if I've seen the documentary which has, you know, narration, music, stock footage, an awful lot of diagrams that you don't find in the book. So that's what made me think, and I would say it's maybe one of the most underrated books about the assassination, because the second half is buried. And if somebody who really knows the documentary inside out and doesn't want to read the transcripts and goes straight to the second half, they'll get their money's worth. So I decided to do a book review about uh, about it and uh, yeah and uh, I, I'm glad I did I and I think we we might want to discuss it I what I can do is give you some samples of the things I did find out in there because what I did uh, for the for the book review I you know I described some of the weaknesses that I found with uh, with the book and and the uh, strategy of putting transcripts in there and everything and then I said to myself you know what let me give some samples from each and every one of the experts. I think there's between 26 and 30 experts where you get some added insights. And I said, let me give some examples of what is in there that is pure gold. And if people read just what's in my article, it'll give them a taste of what they can get. Because what I put in the article isn't, 5% of the excerpts in total. You know, I'm just giving small samples. And um, yeah, so uh, I think that that's 
that's why I, I said I have to write a book review on this because uh, I'm sure an awful lot of people it's, it's probably flying under the radar and uh, I don't know Len did you have a chance to read uh, the, the I, I didn't I didn't get the book and, and okay. it's strange because that's why I'm so glad that you would influence you know me and listeners that I just assumed well oh I guess it's a transcript of the uh, of the film right and so yeah just continue go ahead I mean that's that's the thing if if you say that uh, there's a lot more and it's it's worth it um, uh, you know well, that's probably the first thing tomorrow I'll be ordering it oh yeah no you won't be disappointed. So, you know, let's just try and give some background. As we know, uh, the documentary is kind of a bookend, eh? 30 years after the movie JFK. And, and what it's about is what have we learned since the classification started because of the ARB, which was, uh, you know, inaugurated because of the movie JFK. So that's kind of the thinking that went into uh, Jim, Rob Wilson's, and Oliver Stone's motives to to produce a documentary. And what it does, you know, you often hear criticism of a great article or a great book. They, they always start the critics who are there to obfuscate or, or deflect. They'll often say, well, there's nothing new here, folks. You couldn't have any, I mean, this is ridiculous if you were to say that about these excerpts because we're talking about uh, knowledge mostly acquired because of declassification. So there's no way you, you can say there's nothing new here. There's an awful lot of new stuff here and important stuff. And um, the strategy that they used for the documentary is to take 30 world leading specialists and have them completely dismantle the lone nut uh, uh, fairy tale, you know, peddled by the Warren Commission, which I think was well done in the documentary and uh, further uh, expanded upon in the book. The other thing that is very effective in both the documentary and even more so in the book is this painting of um, JFK as sort of a warmonger who uh, it was responsible for, for starting Vietnam. That should be buried forever. And uh, as you know, I had done a study on how history books portray JFK, and most of them, most of them say he was killed by a lone nut. They, their, their most important source is the Warren Commission, and um, they also paint him as a cold warrior. And, and that is, that's brainwashing of students. It's not true. It, it, they should be shamed to stop doing that. And people from your audience should look at their kid's history book and complain to their teacher. Go and see. Go and see what's in that history book and go to the JFK chapter and complain. You know, you wouldn't want your kids to be told uh, your kids, your students or, or, you know, one plus one equals three. Well, this is as bad, you know, when you tell them that, uh, you know, that the official traces based on the Warren Commission uh, is that, uh, you know, uh, that JFK was uh, killed by a lone nut and so on. So I think that JFK uh, revisited through the looking glass demolishes that version. And, you know, if you looked at the, the other thing that's extremely strong in the 
arguments put forth is who are among the people putting forth these arguments. And Len, I, I've never seen 30 experts comprised of judges, lawyers, PhDs, teachers, historians, doctors, criminalists. I mean, you think of uh, some of the people I'll talk to you about them later and you say, wait a minute, these people are supposed to be uh, QAnon-ish conspiracy theorists? There's just no way. If you combine that with the stock footage that you can see in the uh, documentary where you see people like commissioners uh, from the Warren Commission, uh, Cooper, Russell, Box, even Ford, eh? what he told Giscard d'Estaing, saying things that completely discredit a lone nut uh, version of, uh, of things. And then you can go to the church committee and, and hear people in that documentary like Senator Schweiker. Uh, saying what he said in the documentary, and then Richard Sprague and Robert Tannenbaum from the HSCA. Uh, uh, you know, these are the top, top people. Uh, Doug Horn, Judge John Tuenheim, and others from the ARB that are in the book and in the, the documentary expressing their views, speaking freely. There's absolutely... Now, compare that to the people who are lobbying these insults at the, you know, the researchers who've written great books or, uh, you know, produce the documentaries. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll take the credentials of these people any day compared to who some of uh, the lone nut apologists are. Any day. Yeah, the Flat Earth Society. Oh, no, any day, uh, It's not even comparable. It's, it's not, As a matter of fact, it... What this documentary does, and the book, it turns the tables on who is really quacky and out on a limb. It's certainly not people like you and me who agree with Richard uh, Schweiker and Richard Sprague and Robert Tannenbaum. It's not us. And it's so obvious when you, you hear and look at what they have to say. And you were in Quebec City. When the audience, like there's a total of 1,000 who either went to the Diamond or the cinema or that, that uh, panel discussion uh, between 900 and 1,000 uh, attendees, the reactions were unanimous almost. And even a lot of the journalists were saying, no, no, uh, you know, there, there, there's clearly a conspiracy, right? Uh, I think they're swayed by not just what the arguments are, are, sorry, but by who is delivering the message. So, you know, you take all these government insiders and then you add uh, criminalists like, uh, uh, I forget his first name, I, I have it later, Lee, what's his first name? Uh, Henry Lee. Henry Lee, okay. Talk about a high-level expert to have on your show. And then there's uh, uh, Brian Edwards. And then you have some phys physicians like uh, Chesser, uh, Aguiar, uh, Wecht, and, and Mantic. You have lawyers, you have journalists, historians that really, a lot of them interviewed witnesses. An awful lot of them looked at the primary evidence. An awful lot of them have combed through the files. And that's something that is also very different from the people who often write these negative book reviews. They, you know, those who write negative book reviews, 
you know, do they actually go and interview the Clinton witnesses about Clay Shaw and David Ferry being there, like Jindy Eugenio did? You know, he actually traveled there. I think he went in a Volkswagen or something, and I think he didn't he go with William Davy anyway. He had a partner at one point, and they they actually talked to the witnesses, and they went, you know, to look at you know. Uh, 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 the, the vistas, the sites, and everything. And an awful lot of the researchers do that. So that's what's impressive. It, it, it's people, when you will read this book, you're, you're, you're going to be impressed by not just what these people who are very close to the action or who, or who really studied it had to say, but you, you're going to look at their credentials and you're going to say, wait a minute, this isn't, you know, these aren't, because we know there are some quacks who write about conspiracy theories. Yeah, sure. Doesn't mean we all are, and it doesn't mean there's certainly uh, Oliver Stone would not want Jim to just pick out anybody that uh, you know that will uh, hurt the credibility of what he's producing. Is there a possibility of an error? Yeah, there was an error in the documentary I'll talk about, but it's it's nothing major. Um. The other thing, too, is you have to consider. Now, if you take my example, Alain, I was interviewed for over 50 minutes. I think on average, uh, Jim was saying that people were interviewed between for, for between 50 minutes and up to two hours. Now, if you consider that the average amount of screen time of the people that were interviewed is of about, say, four minutes, it, it means that over 90% of what they had to say was left out. And that's normal. You want this to fit into a four-hour documentary. So there's a heck of a lot of stuff that, we, that couldn't be presented in the documentary. And what Jim did is he went to find a lot of the best of what didn't make it into the documentary. And think of it this way, what he what he does do then, okay, is if you look at the documentary, he may add about another 15%. In other words, say 5% of what we had standard up in the documentary, another 15% made it into the excerpts. There's still 80% of what people had to say that is in film version somewhere that may be eventually you know, in an archive or, or, or shown, you know, uh, interview by interview. But um, I, I did find, though, a few weaknesses, and I, I, I do want to go over this because I mustn't be biased in what I'm, I'm doing here. Um, the error I'm talking about that made its way in the documentary and the uh, those who talked about this uh, admitted it during the Kappa meeting is when there was an incredible section uh, in the documentary about the chain of possession and the chain of custody being broken. And that, that happened with, on many instances, okay, with many, many of the pieces of evidence. The most evident one was CE399, the magic bullet. And one of the claims made was that Elmer Lee Todd, who would have handled the bullet, that his initials could not be found on the missile. And it ends up that there, it more than likely is there, are there his initials, uh, 
so that is also obviously repeated in the book. So I pointed that out. Again, I don't want it to lessen uh, the, the importance of what was proven in the documentary is that CE399 is a joke. It, it would never have made its way in court, or if it did make its way in court, it would have been ridiculed for all sorts of reasons. I mean, the number of people who said that that, uh, that, that the, um, the missile could not have caused the damage it's claimed to have caused to both um, Kennedy and Connolly. Just keep in mind, it's said to have broken a rib bone in Connolly's uh, rib cage and his, his wrist, a wrist bone, a very thick wrist bone. And tests were performed on that bullet, uh, on a bullet that would have caused, they show, the, you know, someone um, fired, I think about a hundred rounds into the, uh, you know, in cadavers in their wrists. And the, the, uh, the missile would always come out, you know, like a wreck, not one of them looked like C399. And you even have people like Humes, who performed the autopsy, even he said, I doubt that that bullet or C399 could have caused the damage it is said to have caused to Connolly. And so did Connolly's doctor, a guy called Shaw. So, and there's still a ton of problems around the chain of custody because you, you have a, a timeline, conflicting times on different sheets of paper where they say the bullet's at one spot and then someone else claims that it's at another spot. So it, it doesn't change anything, but nevertheless, it's, it's a, um, it has to be considered, uh, you know, something that should be pointed out. Uh, the other thing, I don't know if you would agree with me on this. I, I've had discussions with Jim and even Oliver when he was in Quebec City, is I really feel that the Lopez report and Oswald in Mexico City should have found its way maybe into at least the four-hour version of the, the documentary. Um, I understand that you have to make choices, though. You, you have to make choices in a documentary. You have to, you know, they had to bring it down to four hours. And Mexico City could, could be complicated to, you know, an audience that's not too used to the story. But it is so explosive. When you consider that he was impersonated there, that, uh, you know, David Atlee Phillips and Ann Goodpasture uh, agents, CIA uh, personnel in Quebec City, were found to be lying by uh, people in the HSCA. When you think of what the uh, investigators, Dan Hardway and Lopez, could have revealed in the documentary in uh, about Mexico City, I think it, it would have been, um, you know, something, again, at least in the four-hour version, and, and, and I would have found a way of uh, plugging it in the book, for sure, but it, it's not there. Now... I don't know, uh, Len, what do you think? I mean, do, 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 you, um, do you agree with me of the importance of Mexico City? Maybe. Well, maybe that's an opportunity that uh, me and you should put together a quick, short little documentary just about Mexico City then. Yeah, I agree. I could do something like the 50 Reasons between maybe me, you, and Jeff Carter. It's out there, you know, and you, you seem to have the interest. 
that's all it takes, you know, a little initiative. Somebody saying, look, at, there's all these facts and contrary yep. uh, things. Let's put it together in one place. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's fine. We're going to uh, do something about that. But uh, it's uh, it, it's something that uh, I, I still wanted to note. And by the way, these are, you know, maybe not everybody shares my point of view on that, but uh, a few people I spoke to kind of felt uh, that it, it, it was that important. The other thing, too, is that I question the idea of putting uh, transcripts of the documentary in the book. I, I don't know what the added value is. Maybe there is some, but uh, you see you have 200 pages of transcripts and then you get to 220 pages of excerpts. So the effect of that is it may have discouraged people to even want to start reading the book and thinking, well, what, 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 you know, uh, it, you know, so if, if it, if the book had been positioned as something, here's the great stuff that didn't make its way in the documentary. And then they could have augmented, they could have augmented the uh, amount of expertise <clears throat> that, uh, you know, that uh, all of uh, the Jim uh, wrote about, okay, in the book. Uh, the other thing, too, I found that it, it could have maybe used a few graphs and charts the book because I found that was one of the great strengths of the documentary is when you, the, 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 you know, when they showed the graphs, for instance, of how the girl on the stairs and, and you know, they're showing the, the graph of the difference between going to the stairs from the fourth floor and the sixth floor and you know, many of the diagrams and uh, vi visuals that are used in the documentary, they're, they're not present in the book. So those are the, the things that I did find as um, perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps things I would have done differently. Now that we've gotten through the, 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 that part, I have to say is when you get to the second half and you go through it, and you start what you, you, you get is 26 to about 30 experts. Almost all of them appeared in the documentary. I think there's one or two who may not have. And, and you start reading things that, that you didn't know. It starts hitting you fast and furiously. Like I tried to say, when did I ever read a book? where I could hear from so many different experts, interviewed by two incredible interviewers in Jim and Oliver, and uh, people of that caliber saying as much. So I said, how do I communicate that? I said, well, let me give samples of these excerpts. And I, I gave away maybe 5% of what you can find, you know, I gave away about seven pages out of 230 pages. Uh, when I say seven pages, it's total. It's not, uh, it's not, uh, you know, it's a little bit from each one, from each ex expert. And I said to myself, okay, if I, if I can give a little sample, maybe people will read that and say, oh boy, uh, yeah, I, you know, where else can you find that kind of uh, insight? So what I thought I could do, uh, Len, is maybe share some small samples of these samples 
with Go you. right ahead. Go right ahead. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I, I'm just going to read, you know, uh, from Jefferson Morley, okay, veteran journalist, wrote some great books. And he, um, he talked about the fight between Oswald and Carlos Bringier, okay, of the DRE that looked manufactured. This was a, a fight that was started by Carlos Bringier being, uh, being a Cuban exile who claimed to be really angry about when he would see Oswald uh, leafleting for the Fair Play for Cuba committee. So next thing you know, they're on a radio debate and Oswald goes from a summer of being mostly underground and all of a sudden very visible around August of 1963. That's where they're setting him up to look unhinged and pro-Castro. So what he says is, Oswald goes public and the two organizations in New Orleans that give him his publicity are instruments of the CIA. The DRE, which was paid $50,000 a month by the CIA, and Inca, this was the uh, propaganda farm uh, that used to broadcast all sorts of messages on radio that were anti-communist, okay, so that was Inca. Uh, which also publicized Oswald's group, and that organization, Inca, was in league with the CIA. So that I found very interesting. Aaron Good, PhD, author, he said this about Henry Luce. Now, Henry Luce is a media magnate, and it's just a small thing, but it just jumps out that Henry Luce disagreed with Kennedy on foreign policy. And he pointed out that uh, there's a lot of money that's going to be made in Asia. Of course, they're talking about, uh, you know, supplying foreign governments with military equipment. And then you know, getting a lock on, on uh, maybe getting supplies, like, you know, you're talking about Indonesia also. So, and he says this was his big disagreement with Kennedy. So that was a little hint for me in, in uh, terms of uh, uh, Oswald not being in league with the power elite. Um, Brian Edwards. He's an instructor in criminal justice at Washburn uh, University. And he talked about investigation anomalies. He confronted Jim Lavelle. Jim Lavelle is, uh, you know, one of these Dallas cops that was involved in uh, Oswald's arrest and questioning. And he says, I asked him point blank, why didn't you take notes of what this guy, Oswald, is saying. And you know what he told me? He says, what he told uh, uh, Edwards, he says, it wouldn't have changed the outcome of the case. This is the day before Oswald got shot. Again, what should come screaming out here is that criminalists' point of view of perhaps the most important suspect of the 20th century is being questioned for 48 hours and there's not a stenographer 
present or nor is it being taped. I mean, uh, how insane is that? Let's keep going. Cyril Wecht. This is what I love with uh, what I read from Wecht. Okay, so you know how crazy, how crazy uh, some of the explanations were to try and and uh, you know explain Kennedy's violent backward to the left motion when he gets struck by a bullet. Uh, the, the, the first thing that you can see in the Warren Commission, right? First of all, they don't try to explain it initially. They get life to buy the Zapruder film and lock it up so nobody can see it. Put it in a vault. Then the second thing you can read, Len, if you read the Warren Commission, description of the bullets that hit Kennedy. Nowhere do they mention in that description the violent snap of the head backwards nowhere they, they, they stay away from that but then you know it finally comes out right it finally comes out because of Gerardo Rivera and uh, the whole uh, country gets to see it and they say oh wait a minute that's a shot from the front so uh, so <clears throat> that's when the junk science starts uh, piling up they tried to use the jettison effect which was completely debunked, okay? But that, that, that is something like they, they shot something into a watermelon and at one point the watermelon kind of <clears throat> leans forward and falls forward. <coughs> and that would be their explanation that saying, you know, they're not firing at a coconut, you'll notice, or something that's hard, but they had tried, I think, a whole pile of other vegetables and fruit and objects and all the others fell back, you know, went in the direction of the bullet. But they misrepresented that experiment. It's ridiculous, the jettison effect, and nobody was buying into it. So they came up with the neuromuscular reaction. The neuromuscular reaction, it's as if, you know, all of a sudden, you see that, you know, sometimes in sports when a, someone gets hit really hard, they can go into a sort of a seizure. Okay. Uh, so what Wett says that there's two types of neuromuscular reactions. There's decerebrate and there's decorticate. And he says each of those reactions don't fit because what you would have seen is an arched back, a protruding chest, the arms uh, then out and flexed in. And for decorticate, that's for decerebrate, the arms extended outward. Neither of those are shown with Kennedy's position in the car. So he actually looked at the... Uh, uh, you know, the movement of Kennedy after the shots. And he, he, and by the way, those who pushed that for the HSCA, not one of them was a neurosurgeon. So that's another thing that was brought up. David Mantic, <clears throat> radiation oncologist, PhD in physics. Okay. And he talked about the CE399 trajectory and the Harper fragment. So, what he says is that Mantic personally spoke with John Ebersol, who was the radiologist at the Bethesda autopsy. And he clearly said, this, this radiologist, that the point of entry 
was probably T4. Now T4, it's a number of inches down your back. Uh, you know, I think I'll let the audience, if they want to look it up uh, using Google or something, uh, but that clearly indicates that it's just too low, uh, you know, for it to have ex exited the throat the way it was supposed to. Uh, even people on the HSCA are saying, what, are you saying that the bullet was rising as it exited the throat? And then the next question is, oh, well, how did it start going back down towards uh, Connolly to hit him where, you know, where it broke a rib? So the lineup doesn't work anyway. But the point is, this is what he says. He says, if that's true, what Ebersol said, then the magic bullet is a total loss. It's impossible. Either you run into the lung and the lung would be punctured, but we know that that did not happen. Or the bullet runs into the cervical vertebrae, but we know from the x-rays that that did not happen. So that's what he pointed out there about the Harper fragment, um, just for your audience. I don't know the student's first name, but his family name was Harper. And I think it was the day after the assassination, he found skull, a skull bone, a piece of skull bone at Daly Plaza. And uh, three pathologists saw the fragment and they all agree that it was occipital, from the occipital area. In other words, the back of the head. So, uh, and thank God they took good, I don't want to say good pictures, but they have pictures. Because that, that incredibly important piece of evidence disappeared. No, you can't find the, the Harper fragment anywhere. Pretty incredible. Um, yeah, along yeah, with along the piece of curb that had uh, a bullet ricochet. Uh, that they cut that curb out and they sent it to National Archives where it's lost. Then you get, uh, you know, Kennedy's brain, you get uh, uh, tissue samples, skin tissue samples that disappeared, you photographs. Doug Horn says there's at least, is it 18 photographs or 12, I forget which, but over 10 photographs that are known to have disappeared. You know, so I mean... Uh, uh, the amount of evidence of just, you know, and do we talk about John Connolly's clothes being taken to the washer before being analyzed? And how about the, the limousine being repaired within days? You know, I mean, that's the crime scene. The crime scene, it seems to me, you, you, you kind of keep it intact who destroys a crime scene you know, anyway gary aguilar he had an awful lot to say this is what i love about him okay uh, what he says they i think he's referring to the hsca all they said that all the witnesses at the autopsy okay at the autopsy at bethesda they all agreed to those autopsy photographs showing no damage to the back of JFK's head. These are very controversial photographs that when you, 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 you show them to 
the Parkland doctors and, and others, they say, no, 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 it's all cleaned up. Uh, there's clearly an occipital huge uh, hole there the size of an egg. And anyway, that disappears, okay? You can't see them. But then the ARB comes along, okay? Here, here's the thing is, before I get to the ARB, is the HSCA suppressed the witness statements themselves. Okay, so again, you go to Bethesda, and they claim that all the witnesses agree with the photographs, but they don't release the actual statements. But when the ARB comes along, and out comes all the statements. And then out comes some diagrams, you know, drawings people made of the injury. And lo and behold, it turns out that the witnesses at the autopsy all agreed with the doctors at Dallas that the defect involved the rear of the head. They basically lied about what was there. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's in a government report, you know, a government report that completely misleads about what people said they saw about the back of the head injury. And uh, uh, Gary Aguilar is corroborated by Doug Horn, okay? So a lot of people attack Aguilar and Mantic, but if you go to the ARRB insiders, there's an awful lot of corroboration there. Let's go on. Ah, Doug Horn. Okay, Doug Horn. God, he wrote an amazing book. I did not read his book, but I heard his hours upon hours of discussions about inside the ARB. And, you know, you don't get any more of an insider than people like Doug Horn, right? So listen to what he says. First thing he points out is the um, those that that uh, performed the autopsy, Humes, Boswell, and Fink. According to him, their depositions used to be all given as a group. In other words, for the HSCA, I believe, and the Warren Commission, they didn't take depositions from them separately. So I think it was Humes who uh, would, you know, lead the charge and the other two would cheerlead. So they, 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 they'd end up with, you know, a common, uh, a common story. Now, he says, contrary to other depositions done of the autopsist during other investigations, the ARB questioned Dr. Humes and Dr. Boswell separately. This yielded a stunning result. While Humes contended under oath that there was no bone missing in the back of JFK's skull, Boswell said there was bone missing in the rear of the skull and actually made a sketch on a three-dimensional skull model now at the archives, showing missing bone skull from the top of the head, part of the right side, and the eye, entire right rear of the cranium. I mean, 
does it get any more, how could I put it, um, clear? Does it get any clearer than that? You have a complete contradiction between Humes and Boswell. You have actually his drawing on a skull in the archives saying this is the injury and Boswell saying there is no injury. Uh, weren't they at the same autopsy? And this is harm. You know, he's describing it as a stunning result. You bet, okay? Now, this is something that Boswell may speculate partially on, but here's something else he wrote. Boswell admitted that there was an incised, incised wound in the forehead of JFK, okay? And this horn interpreted the following way tells me that there was an entrance wound right there, which other people signed photographs. The photographs that did make it into the official record. There was a small entrance wound removed with a scap scalpel before the autopsy started. Okay, so what the hell is that incision wound in the forehead? Is it something to hide the entrance? That's what uh, Horn thinks. I find that, uh, I found that to be, you know, I got goosebumps when I was reading that. James Galbraith, okay, university professor, author, essayist on, Os on Kennedy's Vietnam withdrawal plan. Okay. He said his father admitted many times, because his father was a very close collaborator to Kennedy, okay? And he said, Kennedy knew what he wanted, and he knew that my father would deliver what he did, which was a detailed skeptical report about the deficiency of the South Vietnamese government. If an army of a quarter of a million people could not prevail against less than 20,000 insurgents at that time. It was not a situation in which an outside force stood much chance of changing the income. So this is, uh, you know, Galbraith's son saying that Kennedy had a plan, did not want to get into Vietnam. Jim Gotchenauer. He gave some riveting, uh, you know, um, details about uh, Elmer Moore of the Secret Service intimidating witnesses to get them to change their testimony, including uh, Clark, who said that the throat wound was clearly uh, uh, was an, an entrance wound. Okay, so um, he says that Gotchner, Gotchner said that Moore showed him an autopsy photo of JFK. Moore also confirmed that he had to shut down Ruby when he began opening up about shooting Oswald, fearing it would imply premeditation. I didn't know that. You know, I found Gotchner, what he, Gotchenauer, what he had to say about uh, Abraham Bolden and intimidating witnesses was amazing, but we get this tidbit that Elmar Moore seemed to be the heavy who was not only going around intimidating doctors, he had to tell Ruby to shut up. Let's keep going. 
Okay, so Judge John Tuanon. Okay, and I repeat the word judge. He's the chairman of the ARB. I think the person should have some standing, right? And he says, we were misled by the CIA about Joe and Evie's, as was the HSCA. So let's go back here, right? For your audience, who is Joannides? So if you go back to the HSCA, under Sprague and Tannenbaum, there's great progress taking place. The investigators are finding links with some of the people who may have managed the assassination, higher-ups, and they're getting close, uh, you know, with, uh, with information coming out of Miami and JM Wave, and they're, they're, they're closing in on David Atlee Phillips in Mexico City. And there's great progress, and all of a sudden it stops to a trickle. When does it stop? It's when the CIA assigns George Joannides as the new liaison. And all documents from the CIA had to go through Joannides first, and he stopped sharing documents. And this was pointed out by Dan Hardway, it was pointed out by Lopez and others. So Blakey was told that Joannides had no links with whatever happened in New Orleans or the case whatsoever. It was later found out, I think it was by Jeff Morley, but Morley certainly wrote an awful lot about it, that Joannides actually was a person leading the DRE. Remember, the DRE is the organization that uh, Carlos Bringier was part of in New Orleans and that was receiving $50,000 a month. So um, Dan Hardway and Ed Lopez described Joannides in the following matter is they knew that Joannides knew uh, what there was to hide and they knew how anyway they, 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 they knew that he was the person who knew exactly what should not be uh, shared and how to hide it anyway he has a better line than that but nevertheless that's who Joannides was to the point where even Blakey said that admitted. He said, I was lied to, and you know what? I can no longer have any confidence in what the CIA, uh, you know, uh, said to us during the HSCA. Something to that effect, anyway. So uh, then, uh, Tuanheim also noted the destruction of autopsy records and Secret Service files, and how the CIA and President Bush opposed the release of classified documents and how Trump did not respect the law by stalling declassification, and finally how the CIA is resisting the release of the Joannides file. So that's coming from a judge, and it's coming from the chairman of the ARB. Again, Henry Lee, Commissioner of Public Safety for the State of Connecticut, Chair Professor in Forensic Science, University of New Haven. This land I never thought about it, but I, I think Jim refers to this as the second magic bullet and the forensic research into the JFK assassination. That's what Henry Lee talks about. Now, he's talking about the headshot here. Somehow, the trajectory of the headshot turned in a 90-degree angle. The third shot, the headshot, the most important shot, entered the back right side of the head, according to the Warren Commission, and came out the front right. 
So the bullet actually turned that angle, right? Because think of where Oswald is. Okay, anybody, I visited Daly Plaza. So the bullet would have gone in sort of an angle heading from right to left as it hits Kennedy's back of the head and does a turn in the head to exit on the right side. So let me repeat that, okay? The third shot, the most important shot, entered the back right side of the head, according to the Warren Commission, and came out the front right. So the bullet actually turned that angle. I think this is as bad as C399, uh, you know, when you think of it, trajectory. It's as bad as that trajectory. Anyway, it certainly made an impression on Henry Lee. Then he says, of course, the brain was not sectioned to analyze trajectory. And that that one, uh, you know, the, dis, uh, the sectioning could have, one could have no idea what happened based on the messy work. So yeah, that's his point. He says, you know, on the messy work, I come in here, and I try and look at the medical evidence. I, I, I just can't come to any conclusion. It's too messy. That's that's what he uh, writes. You know, that's what we can find in those excerpts. Uh, Thomas Samalock, he was the deputy director and press officer for the ARB. I'm just going to say this, what he thinks of what's going on right now. Okay. Because the records have not been released in total, and I don't think any good reasons have been given. So what he's saying is he thinks the law that, you know, the deadline for declassifying was in 2017, that you have two successive presidents who are breaking the law. That's what that means, in his opinion. Now, Dr. Donald Miller, you know, I found in the documentary, he's the guy who, who tells how Dr. Clark, who had given a press conference after the, the assassination, after Kennedy was pronounced dead at Parkland, and he described the, uh, the, the throat wound as a wound of entry, okay? And <clears throat> he says that Years later, he was very close to Clark because they performed operations together and that one night when they were both tired, that Clark said that wound was definitely an entry wound. No question, something to that effect. So he, he's, um, he's very convincing. He also talked about George Berkeley. Now, George Berkeley was uh, the White House physician. He was in his 60s. He's the only doctor who was, you know, he's the only person who was, uh, you know, doctor present in the motorcade uh, at Parkland and Bethesda. He was never called as a witness, you know, by the Warren Commission. And he signed, you know, the death certificate 
and indicated an entrance wound lower than the Warren Commission was ready to give it credit for. Okay, so when you see his, his drawing, what you see is an entrance wound that is somewhere near the fourth thoracic vertebrae. And I think that's what he describes in writing, third or fourth. And that makes an entry, an exit at the level of the throat very difficult to imagine. But he, uh, Miller was friends with Berkeley's son. And the son said the only thing the dad would say about the assassination is that the dad could never understand why the Warren Commission never asked him to testify. Now, this is the biggest thing, one of the biggest revelations I just didn't know about. Um, Len, have you heard of James Young, a, a second physician uh, for the White House? Does that name ring a bell? No, it doesn't no, ring a bell. I may have heard of him, but okay, the White House. No, James Young. Yeah, I didn't know about him. But it ends up that he, he went to Bethesda to offer to replace uh, Berkeley because he knew Berkeley was a, of a certain age. And uh, and he asked two, um, two people. Let me, I just want to make sure I get this straight, straight. Give me a second, okay? And he sent two people. I think they were called Mills. One was called Mills and Martineau. And he asked them to go get uh, what was found in the back seat or in, in the limousine, okay? In terms of, uh, you know, bones and, and whatnot. And they came back with a bullet. I don't, and, I, I'm, and he put it in a report. He said, uh, you know, uh, he wrote about it. He said, they, they brought back a bullet with a, a bent tip. Um, and then he said that for some reason, when he read some of the uh, investigation reports, they never talked about that bullet. And uh, he even wrote Gerald Ford about it way, way much later. He says, uh, I, I'd like to ask you a question, you know, uh, he says, I, I you know, I had written this report or I, I had informed people about this uh, this uh, extra bullet. And I, I never heard anything about it. And anyway, uh, Ford just obfuscated in his answer. I don't know exactly what it was, but he never admitted to it. But the, the thing is there is that was one question that, you know, people like Bugliosi and others would often say, well, if the bullet entered the neck, right, from the front, where's the bullet? Well, maybe that's the bullet, you know, maybe it's a bullet that they did find somewhere in the head and you, you don't know, but that's, that's the type of argument that they use there. So that, that I found absolutely fascinating. Now, Len, those are, you know, pretty well some of the examples I wanted to give. Uh, it's just a few of them. So I don't know if you have any questions, but 
Uh, no, I've got to get the book. Oh, so, yes. uh, I took it for granted. So you've talked me into it. <laughs> Good. Good. I'll ask Jim for a commission. <laughs> no, but look, it's, you know, I only reveal seven pages out of over 200. And I can tell you that, that the rest that in, that's in there is just as revealing and incredible. And I don't know of another book that includes that many experts who spoke who spoke freely and with that level of expertise. And I don't know, you know, when you have interviewers, the caliber of Oliver and Jim, you, you know they'll ask the right questions. And you know that the experts will feel that confident that they're talking to the right people. So they're likely to to, you know, say what they know and, and, and feel feel free. I mean, oh, good God. You know one thing I forgot to mention? Something that Doug Horn says? And you know what? I'm going to go on memory here. But he was not supposed to talk about Oswald's earnings. Okay, Oswald's, because, you know, uh, Oswald's tax records, right? I don't think they've ever been declassified. So let me get this. It's, it's, it's worth it. Okay, so... He says, if I talk to, to you about this, they'll probably throw me in jail. And Oliver says something to the effect, oh, just let them. <laughs> and then Doug says, okay, what the heck? And here's what he says. He says, are you ready for this? Oswald's last quarter of earnings in the United States before he defected to the Soviet Union should have been paid by the Marine Corps, and they weren't. That has serious implications to me because of the speculation that he was a false defect, a fake defector. <laughs> I, 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 so, you know, just the fact that Doug was uh, hesitant to give that information <laughs> and Oliver says, oh, let them throw you in jail. And then he, he lets that out. I found that amazing. The other thing, too, is there's a lot of fact checking that went on. There's a lot of corroboration. So when you read this, you'll see an awful lot of the experts that, as I say, co corroborate what a previous expert may have said. And I'm going to uh, read from my conclusion here. The other element that is clear is that there is a high level of corroboration throughout the second half of the writings. And the author did a lot of fact-checking before publishing. The experts clearly do something that most na no, na uh, sorry most naysayers avoid. They get down and dirty in their research and analysis and base their affirmations on solid foundations. How many Warren Commission apologists actually questioned Young, uh, McGehee, Moore, Spencer, Stringer, Galbraith, Berkeley's son? Not one. At least I don't. I've never heard of it. Never has the contrast between the current crop of lone scenario defenders and the network of real researchers been so evident. And I mean that. I mean that when I look at this cast of experts. Okay. And then uh, the current, no, the tables are now turned. To say that Henry Lee, Judge Tuenheim, uh, Samaluk, Doug Horn, um, uh, uh, Richard Sprague, uh, Richard Schweiker, 
uh, Robert Tannenbaum, Robert Blakey, uh, some of the Warren commissioners, Robertson, Edwards, etc., somehow are involved in a false flag operation and are quacks, says more about those dishing out these mindless insults, and turns the, ta- the lights on who the real QAnonish conspiracy theorists are. That's um, that's what I like about what's happening lately. Is that you know, um, I really like the caliber of the people, uh, you know, in the research community, the best ones, and the ones that were put together for this documentary, and in the book. So that's that's pretty well the book review, uh, um, Len. I don't know if you have any questions. Uh, no, nope, I got to go through the book myself and uh thank you for being a catalyst to to really bring it to my attention of course i heard about it from jim and that and uh uh i just one thing led to another and uh, i didn't pick it up but i will i'm gonna be on a holiday soon um so i'll have something to read yeah um no i think you'll you'll find it fun i mean uh and it's it's easy reading the second half um, I also had a couple of uh, scoops uh, in terms of findings that you, your audience might find interesting. Okay, very good. What are they? Okay, so I'm going to plug again the Garrison Files for you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, let me tell you, uh, recently I have had a number of inquiries for them. People hear the shows after the fact, and every time it's mentioned, people write in, yeah, I can get it for free. I said, yeah. I send it by WeTransfer. It's just under two gigs. And people are amazed. They 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 want to know if anybody has um, got them more in a, a categorized or searchable. But I told them that's on the way. You know, we're yeah. working on something. Yeah, Paul Abbott's working on a wonderful indexing, and uh, he he stays in touch. A lot of work, but he's learning by doing that. You know, so he's picking up a lot of information that I may have missed. Richard Case Nagel, do you, do you know who his lawyer was? He had a lawyer while he was in jail. Anyway, the guy's name, and it ends up Jim wrote about him. His name is William Martin. And Nagel has a writing, uh, wrote at one time, he confirmed that uh, Martin, you know, he found out, I don't know if it was later, that uh, he's clearly a spook. He's one of these people the CIA keeps in reserves. Okay? So, you know where William Martin had his office? If you had to take a guess. 544 Camp? (laughs) Close. The International Trademark. Oh, okay. You know, kind of gives you the idea that William Martin was probably, you know, keeping tabs on this person that Garrison was calling maybe the most important witness alive. <laughs> and, you know, he wasn't too far from Clay Shaw's office, right? Uh, I found that very interesting. Second, I have two more sightings of Oswald's um, Latino escort. You know, I did a list of some 30, and uh, there, there are two more. In one case, the Latino is described very much the way others describe the stocky one, because there, there, there are many sightings of uh, Oswald with Latinos, but there's about 25 out of those sightings that mention a stocky one. And in this case, uh, the sighting of this stocky Cuban was with David Ferry. 
and not Oswald. And the witness is Ray Gill. Ray Gill is the guy who had an office at 544, well, at, sorry, the same address as Guy Bannister, which is in the same building as 544 Camp Street. And he was a lawyer that used David Ferry to do some research on his Marcello account, Carlos Marcello being the, uh, the mobster. And he says that he I saw, saw this uh, weird looking Cuban, I think it's three times with, uh, with David Ferry. And then I have another one, like uh, I, I listened to your show and I think you played a, a repeat of, you know, the guy who wrote uh, the flight from Dallas. Oh yeah, right, yeah. Okay, so I went into that guy's testimony or story and he says that Oswald when he embarked or the lookalike of Oswald after Oswald had been arrested who embarked on the plane was with a Cuban type okay so you know how solid is that one and all that he, I, I read the whole book I ordered the book and I'll tell you uh, definitely the guy CIA that's been confirmed that the guy who saw Oswald uh, had mandates with the CIA, uh, you know, and ended his career with the, the CIA. And uh, and I think the, anyway, the, the lawyer who helped him found an awful lot of uh, corroborating information. But anyway, that's a second sighting uh, of Oswald. So that would add two more, you know, to a pretty large list that kind of, I think demonstrates that Oswald Garrison was right to say Oswald had uh, had Latin Latino escorts with him often, and and people accompanying him or uh, an Oswald lookalike. So those are two little scoops I thought I'd throw in at the end there. All right, very good. Well, um, thank you for your good work. Uh, thanks for taking time to talk to me again today, and uh, listeners appreciate it. And mentioning the Garrison files, Paul's gone through them, and people are going through them, and I make them available. Anyone interested, just send me an email request, and I'll pass on a download link. That's great. Uh, yeah. That's great, man. And it's still and amazing. It, I haven't gone through them all. I just haven't. It's it's almost overwhelming. It's amazing it that you've been chipping away at them, but you just get this admiration for Jim Garrison. That, oh, my God, look at all this stuff he was digging up. Oh, yeah, and, you know, uh, the thing is, is he was vindicated by uh, Tannenbaum and some in the HSC and other people later. You know, they said, no, his offices were bugged. Uh, 544 Camp Street was very important in terms of uh, research not done by the Warren Commission, uh, that they concluded that, that, uh, that, um, Oswald was in Clinton with David Ferry, if not Clayshaw. They say if not Clayshaw. So um, they say something to the effect that it's most likely that there's some sort of link between Bannister and Oswald. I mean, uh, you know, and then next thing you know, uh, this probably was found out late in the game, but uh, we now know that Clayshaw had CIA links. Okay, and they're a lot stronger than someone of the names. But he said he claimed that he had no links with the CIA. You know, so he he uh, 
he clearly lied about that. So, you know, uh, people that attack Garrison, uh, and you know what? He presents a lot of raw data. You, 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 can, you can also not believe Garrison, but it doesn't mean that the interviews that were done by him and his staff were not, uh, you know, aren't real interviews. <laughs> they took place. And look, some of those interviews go nowhere. You read them and say, okay, well, here's the interview. It didn't go anywhere. So he's not, the guy's not piling on. He, he's recognizing Ted ends when you go in those 9,000 files. He's not, there's no piling on. And then they say, well, look, we talked to him. He says he saw someone else. Maybe we should try and reach out to him for corroboration. So he's just conducting a normal investigation. Well, that's nothing normal about the JFK assassination. But he's, he, he, the guy's, the, the, the poor guy was so slandered, and if ever someone's reputation was unfairly tarnished in American history, it's that guy who was a war hero. He was lauded as doing a great job all the way up until he tackled the JFK assassination. And even then, uh, you know, he was reinstated in his position after he lost the trial. So, look, uh, nobody's going to convince me that that guy, I'm not saying he didn't make mistakes. He was yeah, but over- that doesn't matter. It's just that if you want to look at his investigation, if you're interested, you get these files, you see that you read the depositions, you read the, you know, the number of things that he was on to, and for some of them to end up as being dead ends. Like you say, this has the footprints of an honest investigation. And look oh. where he's digging up, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, hey, listen, great to be on your show. Uh, right. I just want to tell you also we're working on something. Uh, uh, a bunch of us were five working on a project right now that is really exciting. And it should be launched for the 60th. Okay, but, good. Let me know when it's getting close to uh, that time, and we'll have you on to promote it. Great. All right. Thank you, Paul, for uh, all your work. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks for having me on your show. All right. Good night. Good night.